You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Freedom. It's something that we all desire. It's something that we all want. As a matter of fact, when it comes to freedom, there are only two descriptors that really matter in this life. It's those that are free and those that are not. God created us to experience and to flourish and to live in freedom. Practically speaking, history tells us that all of human life really revolves around this idea of being free or not being free, either having freedom or having it forcibly taken away. Wars have been fought over it. Blood has been shed for it. Songs have been sung about it. And we've had protests, marches, speeches that have been done to celebrate it, to preserve it, protest or to fight for it. Why? because we all want to be free. I can assure you in this room this morning and watching online, every single one of us want and enjoy freedom. Because everybody wants that and we desire that. As I said, so many things have been written and sung and done and talked about as it relates to freedom. Just this past weekend, we celebrated the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he prophesied repeatedly this phrase, let freedom ring. And then he goes on to say when this happens and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up the day that God's desire for us so that Jesus prayer for us in John 17 comes to pass and he ends that speech with what we've all probably heard multiple times free at last free at last thank God almighty I'm free at last but did you know that you could be free and more enslaved than an enslaved person the only thing worse than being enslaved is being enslaved and thinking you are free Sadly, this is the norm and happens all the time, spiritually speaking, because freedom is not just something that we physically experience, but it is something that we spiritually experience even more importantly. And again, throughout all of human history, human life tells us that we revolve around living in freedom or living in bondage spiritually. And a great war has already been fought for our freedom. It was won on on the cross by the shed blood of one person and his name is Jesus Christ and that war is continuing to be waged even today so that that reality of walking in the freedom that Christ died for can be ours freedom in Christ it's what Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 32 then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free then he goes on to say in verse 36 so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed 
And this is what we're after. This is the type of freedom that we all need. This is free indeed, really free. And I want that type of freedom for me. I want that type of freedom for you. And as the body of Christ, the church, if that is who we are, who we're supposed to be, then we should desire that type of freedom for all those around us that God has called us to. We want freedom in its deepest and fullest meaning. And the only place that freedom can be found, my friends, is through Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This week, we're in week four of our sermon series, which we're doing with all of our Every Nation churches all over the world. And we're working through the book of John in the New Testament simultaneously. The theme is abide. As we continue to look at what it means to abide or to remain in Christ. Keevan, Pastor Keevan did a great job last week exploring Jesus as the bread of life that he alone satisfies fully and sustains perfectly. And that's a great definition for having an abundant life, that we would be satisfied fully and sustained perfectly in Christ. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That we might abound. As a matter of fact, John 10, 10, Jesus again in his own words says that I have come to give you life and that you could have life to the full. And I think you and I would all agree that freedom from bondage of sin is a necessary part of living an abundant life. That we would be free from that. But in order to abound, you must first abide, and that's what John says over and over again. Abounding in this life is inextricably linked to abiding in Christ in this life. Abiding in Christ means knowing who he is, accepting who he is, and continually cultivating a relationship with him day in and day out of obedience and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Abiding in Christ brings abundant life, and an abundant life is a life full of spiritual freedom. So let's read from our text this morning. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 8. And again, I want to encourage you, and we're going to keep encouraging you, that if you have a Bible, this would be the best place to begin to use it when you come to church to study God's Word. You can obviously use a mobile device, and we want you to do that where available. But I guarantee you this is not as wrought with as many distractions. My Bible has never tweeted at me or sent me a text alert, but it does speak to me. So let's read from John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 21. And I want to set this up first of all, that Jesus in the past few chapters that we've been looking at has been using the different festivals of the Jews, if you will, to reveal who he is to the people. So you have the festival of unleavened bread or you have the festival of the tabernacles and, and this is where this one's taking place. The feast of tabernacles where Jesus reveals that he is the truth that sets people free. And in context, this dialogue takes place right after Jesus saves the woman only known to us as the woman caught in adultery. He saves her both physically and spiritually and gives her a newfound freedom that she was not even dreaming or expecting when she woke up that day. Jesus displays both truth and grace while exposing the darkness in the lives of this woman's accusers. Then he uses that as a launching pad to declare of himself, I am the light of the world. 
And this again is another declaration at the end of the feast that as we think about Jesus, what Jesus is saying that that Kevin talked about last week, I am the bread of life, that the bread that fell from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness and to sustain them from dying, that was that Christology, if you will, Jesus showing up. He goes, I am that bread, that bread of life. Just like the light in the wilderness that marked their way and showed the way for them. He's saying, I am that light in the darkness. Jesus is showing up and he's speaking to these Pharisees, confirming that he has come to deliver us from the power of darkness because he is the light. The Pharisees then have a debate with Jesus about his claims of being God. The passage that we're dealing with is part of this ongoing conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees trying to help them see that this version of truth that they have is not the version of truth that Jesus is speaking about. The freedom that he's speaking about is very different than what they're thinking about. So let's read from verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just, I have been, just, uh, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word, change our hearts and lives through it. As with the entire book of John, Jesus is continuing to reveal that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate. These scriptures are no different. Jesus isn't being ambiguous in any way. He's like, this is who I am. And when Jesus says in verse 21 that he's going away, he means he's going to die and rise again and go to the Father. And when he says that they will die in their sins and that they cannot follow him where he goes, he means that when they die, they do not just automatically go to the Father. Now, if we're honest, this is still how many people believe life works, right? So when we die, we just go to the Father. We just go to heaven. That's why everybody is up there. That's why everybody's looking down from up there. That's why everybody just got their wings. And yet what Jesus is trying to say, as much as that comforts us to try to think that we can somehow circumnavigate the truth that sets us free, he's saying and he's warning them if they persist in their spiritual blindness and darkness and continue to reject Jesus as the light of the world, the Son of God, they will perish in spiritual darkness and be separated from God forever. But 
Here's the good news. Jesus offers hope. It would be awful news if that was the end, but he offers hope to them. He offers hope to me. He offers hope to you. Verse 24, if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. We, we put that predicate there, he, but everywhere in this verse, particularly in John 8, is if you believe that I am, and that's it. What is he saying? The same thing that God said about himself in Exodus. I am that I am. So Jesus is saying the same thing. Again, he's not trying to be cryptic. He's saying, I am. That same God that spoke to Moses, I am, that's me. I am. We put he there because it makes sense. But he says, those who do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Meaning, what do we need to do? We believe so we won't die in our sins. Believe that I am, that I am from the Father, that I and the Father are one. Open your eyes and see that I am the light of the world and receive me as that light in your life. And you will not perish. Jesus keeps saying it over and over and over again in this passage that he's from the Father, that he speaks what the Father speaks, that he only says what the Father's saying. But things come to a boiling point, if you will, in verse 28, as we keep looking at this, where he finally tells them how they're going to eventually come face to face with what they currently cannot see spiritually. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Remember what the Roman guard said after Jesus breathed his final breath and darkness began to cover the earth? Surely this was the Son of God. Then you will know that I am. See, this doesn't mean that at the crucifixion of Jesus that all these people are going to become believers. Jesus is saying, you know what? You yourselves are unwittingly going to help me finish being the light of the world. You're going to lift me up on a criminal's cross. You're going to crucify me. And when I'm crucified, my role as the saving, redeeming light of the world is going to be secured forever. And I'm going to rise up from the grave, ascend to the Father, and reign and shine in glory forever. And the day will come when you will know this, but you can know it now and have your sins forgiven, or you can be the ones who crucify me, die in your sins, and find out the truth later when it's far too late. And it's the same with you and I today as it relates to the gospel. We see him and receive him as the light of the world now, or we die in our sins and see it only when it's too late, surely he was the son of God. So let's focus in on verse 30 through 36 now. The scripture says in verse 30 that many believed as Jesus was teaching. And then in verse 32, Jesus says to them, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know the truth about what? The truth about who Jesus is. The truth about who we are apart from Christ. This word know is the Greek word gnosko, and it means when you experientially learn something. Head knowledge is good, but we understand that head knowledge possessed through intellectual process of learning is just one part of it. I mean, we say this about a lot of things, like experience is a good teacher, and I agree when it comes to good things in Christ. I disagree when it comes to bad things. I don't need to experience those things to know that they're harmful or going to destroy me. I just need to trust God. But in this case, we need to experience the truth. We need to know Jesus much more in our, just our heads, but in our hearts and in our experiencing. Knowledge gained by experience, by an active relationship between the one who knows and the person or the thing that is being known is far superior than just head knowledge. 
Gnosko is that knowledge that comes not just by reading, not just by listening to the word, but by acting on it and obeying the Lord. You may intellectually know some truth, but you don't really know it experientially until you surrender your life and begin to obey the truth and walk it out. A person must be determined to obey the word if he or she expects to understand it. (laughs) Think about that. If we expect to understand the word of God that we read, then we have to actually experience it by obeying it. And I believe that's why we are oftentimes so spiritually dense. Now, I don't mean to call us dumb this morning, but in some ways I do. Because we left it at the intellectual level of reading and we never put it into the actionable level of experiencing Knowledge without action actually is sin. It's the sin of commission, to know what God has taught, to know what his word says, and then not do it experientially. And the more we know and don't actually do, the more deceived we become, the more spiritually dull, dumber we become. So I want to walk in spiritual freedom and truth and the knowledge of knowing who Christ is and who I am in Christ. And you could tell these people in this particular passage weren't really understanding. They were spiritually dull, if you were. They weren't knowing on the level that they needed to know. We're accepting the truth. Because in verse 33, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Us? Set free from what? (laughs) Look at us. We're not in bondage. We're children of Abraham. Ironically, Jesus is talking about spiritual bondage. And they're talking about maybe spiritual bondage, but they're also talking about physical bondage. We've never been in bondage to anybody, and the irony is this, they've always been in bondage to Egypt, Persia, Babylon, and now Rome. They've always been enslaved, and they're saying, we're not slaves to anyone. We're children of Abraham. It's kind of like the reality of how we feel about ourselves. We always look at ourselves in the best light. But from a spiritual standpoint, the pride of their religious heritage blinded them to the need for a savior. Like I said earlier, people in shackles that think they are free is one of the most terrifying things. What do you mean I'm a slave to sin? What do you mean I'm not a Christian? I read my Bible, I go to church, I've been in a class, I do a small group, I serve. What do you mean I'm not not a Christian? Look what I've done. Look what I do. Hey, my dad was a deacon. My great uncle was a, a pastor or something. I, I go to church sometimes. I read my Bible every now and then. I, I listen to Christian radio when I drive into the parking lot of the church. We're really no different when it comes to truth and freedom and what we think about ourselves sometimes with our religious pride. And if the opposite of truth that leads to freedom or lies that lead to bondage, then we have to be honest, all of us have been deceived at some point in time in our lives. So Jesus raises the bar since they think they've jumped that one. Oh, we're good. We're good, God. I mean, look, we are the children of Abraham. We're good. So he raises the bar to a height that no one can hurdle without him. Verse 34, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's a massive statement. Why? Because everybody sins. As a matter of fact, he had just said that to the woman in adultery, caught in adultery just a moment ago, right? He said that to everybody around. Okay, whoever's without sin could throw the first stone. What happened? Everybody left. 
Everybody intrinsically knew that, oh, well, there's some sin in my life, although I do a lot of good things. Yeah, I can't say I'm without sin or else I'd be claiming to be God like this guy is. So I'm out of here. Therefore, Jesus is saying that everyone is a slave to sin. This means that sin is not just bad actions, but a power that comes from within. A power in our hearts and lives that compels us to do bad actions. So what he's saying is, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That can't be fixed by external cleansers or good actions. It can only be fixed by the salvific power of Jesus Christ. Our slavery is a slavery to the power that's inside of us. If sin was just about good behavior, then we could all become moralists and be free in our own strength, or at least think we are. Do our good deeds. And again, I'll tell you, that is where a lot of us find ourselves. Let me just do enough good to outweigh the bad. Let me just do enough good things to feel good about myself and to feel better about myself than that other person. But here's what Jesus is saying. That's never going to work. You can't do it this way. You can't get free from the bondage that you're in with behavioral modification. This sin goes way too deep. That's Jesus' point. The slavery that you are all in is too deep to break free from on your own. Those shackles and chains that have bound you up have one key, and Jesus is the one man who holds those keys. He alone is the one who can set us free from the bondage of sin and death, and he emphatically says so in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So this freedom that Jesus offers us is first of all a freedom from something. Specifically, it's a freedom from sin. And since sin is so much more than one bad action, that's why we thought, well, I did a bad thing. Well, I got to do a good thing. I, hey, I've done pretty good. I've done, I haven't done a bad thing in four days. It's so much greater than a bad action. And it's something that only Jesus can get to. And so, so since sin is so much more than one bad action, the freedom that Jesus gives us is all-encompassing. It's holistic in every way. Jesus gives us the freedom from sin, from the pull of sin, from the power of sin, from the pain of sin, and from the punishment of sin. Let's talk about these things. Let's talk about the pull of sin, something every single one of us experiences. We could call it desires, fleshly desires, or temptation. Every single one of us is going to be tempted in our lives. Over and over and over again, that's the pull of sin. This is where the enemy tries to make anything else look more desirable to you than Jesus. He tempts us with things that look and feel good. That's why it's tempting. Hello? Like sometimes we think temptation isn't like tempting. Oh, that's no temptation to me. What? He doesn't tempt us with stuff that, uh, that, that we don't like. He tempts us with things that we're drawn to. It's the pull. It's pulling us. Oh, this is going to be great. Oh, this is going to feel wonderful. Oh, this is going to change everything. Oh, this is going to make you feel accepted. It could be an apple in a garden. It could be somebody else's spouse. It could be getting engaged in a conversation of gossip and slander. Or it could be holding on to an offense like a trophy. 
Let me just say this as a side note. We oftentimes think about laying our trophies down at the feet of Jesus as all the good things that we've done. But I'm also here to tell you that there are sometimes we hold on to a lot of bad things as if there are trophies in our life because we're in bondage. And we need to lay those things down at the feet of Jesus too. And one of those is offense. Oh, I'm offended. And everything, I, look at my trophy of offense. You don't even know it. That's, that's being in bondage and thinking that you're free. Lay that down too. So Jesus is the one who's saying, this pull of sin causes you to desire something more than me, to hold on to something more than Jesus. Whereas freedom from sin gives us the power to say no to that pull of sin, that fleshly desire, what Romans 8, 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See, the flesh has not been eradicated in this life, but we are obliged not to live according to it. Sanctification is not a luxury, it is a necessity. And since the pull of sin and fleshly desires are constant, we have to continually put to death the things that our body says, oh, that'd be good. Oh, that's not gonna be that bad. Oh, that looks really good. You should eat a whole box of donuts by yourself. The pull of sin quickly leads to the power of sin. But Jesus gives us freedom from that as well. What is the power of sin? Basically, it's when we wrestle the lordship of our lives from God's hands and take the power into our own hands through our own individual agency and we make our own decisions based on what King Me is saying. Simply put, it's our decision to act on our sinful desires and to give in to the pull of sin instead of resisting that gravitational pull and giving in to it. Give sins the power in our lives through our sinful actions. That's power. Now I'm giving power over to sin by giving in to the pull of sin. This is also where deception begins to work its evil sway in our life. We begin to believe the lies we tell ourselves or the lies others tell us in order to give ourselves permission to do what we want to do instead of what the Spirit of God is telling us to do. And that's why James said this very plainly, don't be deceived. Because deception is always a part of this sinister progression, if you will. Almost always leads to disobedience. And that, my friends, is the power of sin. Watch this. This progression that I'm going to talk about in James in just a second is the power of sin. To take us from what seems like an uh, innocent, questionable thought to a total deception to brazen disobedience. Just like that. And all of a sudden, here we are going, well, how did I get here? How did I end up here? And when we disobey, it creates an appetite that is not going to be satiated by continuing to do this thing that tells you that it will. And you're left saying, what have I done? Jesus gives us freedom from this power of sin that sin wants to exert on us. The power to say no to sin, to obey God, and to say yes to righteousness. The freedom that comes from Jesus also gives us freedom from the pain of sin. That's the consequences or the actions of our sinful actions. We all know scripture says sin is pleasurable for a moment, right? That's, that's the temptation, it's a draw. If you've never had pleasure for a moment from sin, then you've not done it right. There's a pleasure for the moment, it's pleasurable, but in the end, 
It leads to death. There is pain in between that. Because oftentimes we think, oh, sin and death. But there's a lot in the middle between sin and death, and it's a lot of pain. That's the bait and switch of sin. There's great pain when you realize, first and foremost, that you've disobeyed and dishonored God. There's pain when you realize you hurt somebody else that you love in the process. There's pain when you put up a wall between you and God. There's guilt, there's shame, there's sleepless nights, there's anxiety, there's depression, and not only that, but there's the pull to keep doing what you're doing and hoping for a different result. Jesus frees us from this guilt, frees us from this shame, frees us from this pain that accompanies disobedience. And then finally, Jesus gives us freedom from the punishment of sin. That would be damnation. And no, that's not just a cuss word that you heard somebody say at one point. Or you weren't really sure, like me, when you heard it growing up, it's like, is that a cuss word? Damnation, what? What What does Romans tell us that the wages of sin is? Says that wages of sin is death. As a matter of fact, James spells out this whole progression that I just went through step by step very well. James chapter 1, verse 13, I'll read it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. There's the pull of sin. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. There's the action. There's the power of sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. There's the pain And then there's the punishment. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And make no mistake about it, it's hard to tell ourselves when we're in bondage and dead spiritually, it's hard to tell ourselves that that's what's happening when we're actually physically alive and temporarily enjoying the pleasures of this world. It's hard to tell somebody when they think they're having a good time or they're enjoying something or that they're okay or they're a son or a daughter of Abraham or that their mom did this or their dad did this and they're kind of riding on those coattails. It's hard to tell us in those situations that we're in bondage and we're spiritually dead. No one sees death coming when it's just a desire. But the payment for sin always comes due. Just like that mortgage and that rent always comes due. When desire leads to death, it is destructive. That's why what the enemy comes to do is to steal, kill, and destroy. And death is destructive. It's death to our conscience. It's death to our sanctification. It's death to our relationship with God. It's death to the relationship with others made in the image of God. And every time we sin, we die just a little bit more. And eventually, if nothing changes, like being set free by the Son who sets us free, then death will be a spiritual death that lasts forever. So in Christ, we have freedom from all of that, freedom from sin, freedom from the domination and the damnation of sin. And Jesus alone is the one that that frees us from the comprehensiveness of sin. He frees us from all of that. How does he free us from the damnation of sin? Galatians says that he became a curse for us. How does he free us from the domination of sin? The word says that he gives us a new heart and a new life by being what? Reborn. I'm a new creation. So I don't have to be dominated by that sinful lifestyle anymore. I put that to death. Because who the Son sets free is free indeed. But I'm so glad Jesus didn't save us just to free us from something. He also gives us freedom for something. The Son has set you free and given you freedom for discipleship. 
Look at verse 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There are a ton of powerful implications to these verses, but in the ESV it says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The verse we just said, if you abide in my word, if you live according to my word, you're really my disciples. We've been given freedom for abiding to be disciples, freedom for discipleship. But here's something interesting. Did you notice the phrase, truly or really my disciples? This implies that there are disciples who are not really disciples. In other words, there are real disciples and there are fake disciples. There are genuine disciples and there's counterfeit disciples. There's a discipleship that's merely outward and external and a discipleship that goes down to the deepest parts of who we are into the darkest parts where the light of the world lights up everything and dispels that darkness. And we need to discern the difference in our own lives and in the lives of those around us because we've been set free to be those who are free indeed. Oftentimes we think of the world in terms of believers and non-believers, disciples and non-disciples. But what I think we see here is that there's a third category, fake ones, fake disciples. I don't know about you, but that's kind of spiritually disturbing. Makes me think of the time Jesus said in Matthew 7, depart from me, you fake disciples. I never really knew you because you never really knew me. Does that make you a bit uneasy or uncomfortable? Why did Jesus bring this distinction up? Which one am I? And here's why I think he brought this distinction up. He brought it up because of what it says in verse 30. Verse 30 says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. There was a large response in the crowd to what Jesus was teaching that day, talking about being the son of God. But here's the deal. Large responses don't always lead to large remnants. Lots of hands raised do not always lead to lots of lives changed. And we like to count that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, yeah, this many people raised their hand, or this many people came down. Here's what Jesus wants to know. How many of these people lived for me their entire lives? How many of these people are really disciples? See, a lot of people respond. A lot of people make a decision, but not are all real disciples. And I think we understand that whenever there's a large response to anything, it's fair to, it's fair to say some people probably just followed the crowd, whether for good or bad. We call it bad. We call it the mob mentality. We call it good. We call it a revival. Right? Look at all those people that came down for revival. Or you go on the youth trip. Anybody ever been on a youth camp before? And like one person goes down crying and like everybody goes down crying. And they're all like draped over each other down front. And not to belittle those moments because God has changed my life in some of those moments and maybe you too. But I'm telling you, some of those was just following the crowd. But there's always been a greater price to pay to go from following the crowd to following Jesus. See, at some point, it's going to just be you probably having to decide whether or not you're going to follow Jesus when it gets really hard. There's no crowd around. Matter of fact, Jesus knows the whole crowd left. They left. Many people are not willing to pay the price to follow Jesus. They paid the price to follow the crowd, but not Jesus. And you see, Jesus sets us free to follow him wherever he leads forever. That's real freedom. That's real disciples. So Jesus is not assuming that just because everybody believes that all belief is real. I believe that a lot of people behold Jesus. I believe that many will 
believe in Jesus, but I believe that only a few become like him in his death and then become like him in his resurrection. Thankfully, Jesus gives us a test so that we can use and see if we really are disciples, real disciples, true disciples. If we've been set free for real discipleship and it brings us back full circle. In giving us this test, Jesus helps us to be real. The gospel was written not just to awaken faith for non-disciples, but also to wake up those who think they are but aren't and help those who are really disciples confirm that, be equipped and grow stronger in their faith. John's gospel is written not just to create faith, but to sustain faith in those who are following Christ. So which one are you today, real or fake? Which one are we, church? True or untrue? And what does Jesus mean in verse 31 when he says, you are truly my disciples? Let's be really clear. Jesus, for him, true disciple is the same as true Christian or true believer. He's not saying that a true disciple is the second stage of your Christian life. He's not saying that a true disciple is a higher level of Christian maturity. Hey, you start out as a believer and then one day you go to a true disciple. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Notice what he says in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, okay, you believed, good, if now, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He didn't say to those professing believers, if you abide in my word, then one day you'll become mature disciples, real disciples. A true disciple wasn't a more mature stage after belief. No, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You can know if your belief is real or if you are truly my disciples, if you go on abiding in my word, he says. So there's no thought about this being some sort of progressive maturity, a second stage of Christian growth. True disciple means true believer, true Christian, true follower. It means, for example, truly forgiven from your sins. I'm not partially forgiven. I'm truly forgiven. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he says, if you do believe me, that I am, I am from the Father, I am the Son of God, I am the Lamb of God, come to set you free, then you won't die. Because why? Because he is that. He's the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sin of the world. And he takes our place and he receives the punishment that was reserved for us, that it went on Christ, and it means the wrath of God is satisfied and we get life and adoption as God's sons and daughters because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to be a true disciple, to be saved from sin, rescued from the wrath of God, and already experiencing the enjoyment of an abundant life now and an eternal life through Christ. This is freedom, freedom from sin, freedom for discipleship, and lastly, the freedom to abound. How do we abound? Jesus says by abiding in the word. We abound when we abide in my word, he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. True disciples are abounding in freedom. The word is singular, my word, not my words. This means that Jesus is thinking of the sum and the totality of all that he has said about himself, all that he has taught about himself, all the I am statements that he's made. He's the sum of his word. All of his words, in one way or another, draw our attention to the living Christ, the living word. Words like that we've looked at already. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am not of this world. I am the resurrection and the life. I I am the Father. When you take all his words together, they've got one central focus, and that is Jesus himself. 
That's why John 20 says these are written, these words, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They all point to him. It's all the same message. It's all the same story. That's why Jesus said, hey, when they asked him this question, like, who are you? He's like, I've been saying it over and over and over again. Everything that I've said is pointing to the fact of who I am. So the phrase, my word, here in John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, refers to the sum of Jesus' teaching, which is summed up in himself and all that he is for us as the crucified and risen Savior, Son of God. One practical implication today that you can take with you is if you want to know Jesus, you have to know him through his word. This is vital to abiding and abounding in freedom in your Christian life. We know Jesus as a real, living person, primarily through his word, the Bible. The only reason I said primarily and not exclusively is because we also know him through obedience, as we just said. We know him through the fellowship of his sufferings. We know him through being rightly related to the body of Christ, the church. But primarily and most clearly, we know him through his word. Then in verse 31, what does it mean to be in that word? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. To be in the word of Jesus is a whole new way of living. It's a new life. That's what we were saved for, a new life. That's what it means to be a true disciple. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The word abide, we said it again and again, means to remain. It means to stay. This is what makes a difference between the crowd and those that follow him forever. It means remaining in the safety of his word, that you live in the truth, that you're free to experience the the beauty of the word, the power of the word, the value of his word, the provision of his word, the peace of his word, the guidance of his word. In every area of your life, this is what we live through and by. It means not leaving it out of your life in any way. That doesn't mean that you can never set it down. It just means that if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Jesus puts an emphasis on remaining in his word, not leaving it out of your life ever. And what is Jesus saying the mark of a true disciple is? The mark of a true disciple is remaining, lasting, enduring, persevering, staying in and pressing on in the power of the word towards the goal that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the word that brings that kind of abundant life and that kind of power, that kind of freedom and abundance in Christ. So if you don't know Jesus this way, you repent and you receive him as Savior and Lord and begin to live in that freedom even today. If you are his disciple, then you continue to abide in him, in his word, making this a part of your life in every way. How is God informing what you're doing, how you're thinking, how you're relating, how you're loving, how you're deciding to do this or that? How is the word of God informing that? Because that's abiding in the word and determining whether I'm really truly a disciple or if I'm just faking it. And then finally, and here's why we're all here. And I'll admit there could be some in this room or listening that really aren't disciples that don't know him that way, and this could be that day. That's why you're here. But if you do know him and he has set you free, then here's why we're here, church. We're here as those that have been set free to help others experience the freedom that Christ died for, for them. Amen? Did you hear me? This is why we're here. That those that have been freed would be those that bring freedom to the captives. 
that those that have experienced the abiding in Christ and the freedom in Christ would say so and share that with those around us. Those that think they're free and are still walking around in the shackles and the chains, spiritually speaking. Lord, we need that power. Amen. The power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do that. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.